So again, we are beginning 2 Peter today. 2 Peter, so today we will, uh, we will look at verses 1 and 2 in 2 Peter chapter 1. We will deal with the, with the introduction and with the greeting there in verse 1. And, and then we will look at the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. So this letter, 2 Peter, that we're doing was probably written about a year after 1 Peter. Most commentators think, and it was written. The author is Peter, although there's some there's some uh, disagreement with that. I really don't understand the arguments, but uh, it's pretty pretty clear that Peter wrote this. Um, he says in, in verse one in the greeting, Simon Peter. Simon is the Greek form of the Hebrew Hebrew name Simeon, which Simeon was the father of one of the of the twelve tribes of Israel, if you remember in the Old Testament, and was a very, very common Jewish name. Um, and as you guys probably are aware of, that name is used several times different uh, for different individuals in the New Testament, the name Simeon. And the name Peter, written it says it's written by or, or Simon Peter uh, <clears throat> was the name that Jesus gave Simon when he met him and, and called him to follow him. And, and this word Peter is from the Greek word meaning rock. And so we know that we'll also see his name in the New Testament referred to as Cephas, which it has the same meaning, rock, in Aramaic. And so the apostle uh, Peter, who is the writer of this letter, used both names, Simon, Peter, to ensure that it was very clear who the author was. Of this text, and there's there's some there's some scriptures that clearly portray Peter as the writer that we just read, um, and, but we'll talk about we'll talk about as we as we go through the letter. <clears throat> so the recipients, who are the recipients of this letter? Well, it says in in, in verse in verse one, it says to the those. So who who are the those in this in this text? Um, these are going to be. Believers located in the province of Asia Minor. More than likely the exact same people he wrote to in the first letter. Uh, because in, in chapter 3 verse 1 we saw where he said, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. And, and if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us exactly who it is he, he was writing to. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So these are, this is the, the, in that area of Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey, that's who the recipients are. Mostly Gentiles being from these areas, but obviously there would be some Jewish Christians as well. This was probably written from a prison in Rome. Peter probably read, read it from, wrote it from prison. Um, he was facing imminent death. And we get that out of chapter 1, verse 14. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. So he knew his time was short. It's kind of like Paul when he wrote 2 Timothy. He knew his time was short. So, again, he's probably writing this from prison, knowing his death is soon to happen. And according to reliable tradition, he was crucified upside down under the rule of Nero in 67 A.D. is when Peter was said to have been crucified upside down. Uh, Nero committed suicide in 68 A.D. 
So it was all during that period of time. So, the, so the, this letter was written, there's not an exact date, but somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D. Uh, maybe closer to 66, 67, but it's somewhere during that window is when this letter was written. Again, probably about a year after his first letter. And so the main theme of this letter, we just, we just read about, guys, in chapter 2, the main, the main theme of this letter is the warning of false teachers. So that's really going to be, that's really going to be, well, chapter 2 is completely devoted to the false teachers. And he's teaching these believers how to defend themselves against false teachers and their lies. And so, really in this, in this, in this book though, the, the, um, the description of the false teachers is pretty generic. In other words, we don't know exactly what group of false teachers he's referring to. There's speculations, whether it was some early Gnosticism, but it, it really speaks more about their immorality than it does their doctrine, which is something that we have to be aware of as well. But, one thing we knew, do know from chapter 2 verse 1, just in that verse we know that they teach destructive heresies. They deny Christ, and as all false teachers do, they twist the Scriptures. And so... I, and I know you guys know this, that the best way to, for a defense against something false is to what? Know the truth, right? If you know what a regular dollar bill looks like, you're going to know what a counterfeit would look like. It's the same with the Word of God. If you and I know what the Word of God says, we can be ready when something false comes down the road. And so false teachers, these false teachers, all false teachers bring disgrace on the name of Christ. Right? Through their, through their lies, through their greed, through their immorality. It just brings disgrace upon Christianity, upon the, the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, as a shepherd, as a shepherd, uh, is interested in both their, their moral progress. If you look at, well, we're not going to go through them, but in verses 5 through 11, which we'll be looking at here in a few weeks, is really their, their sanctification. Their, their moral progress, they're being made into the image of Christ. So he's interested in that as well as their, their what it says in the last verse of the, of, the, of the letter. He's interested in their growth in, the, in both the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Why, why are these things important? How do they fit into the context of the letter? Well, to be able to stand against false teachers. To be able to stand against false teachers. Um, because false teachers, they can tie you up. Even as a believer, they can tie you up in a spiritual knot if you don't know the truth. Uh, because they're going to be teaching all kinds of, again, destructive heresies. But we'll talk about that more as we go. A quick outline of the book would be the text we're going to look at today and next week. We're really just seeing and being reminded as believers, that our salvation is a gift given by God. All of it. Every part of our salvation is a gift given by God. And these things are important to know. They're important to remember. It, it builds security in the life of the believer, knowing that we didn't do anything to earn it, and we certainly can't do anything to lose it. And then in verses 5, or verses five through 11 in chapter 1, as I just stated, um, as they pursue Christ's likeness, we're going to see in that text that they will grow in strength 
and will have assurance of their salvation. Guys, it's one thing to be saved, okay? But a person could be genuinely saved and not have the blessed assurance that they're saved. I was there as a young believer. And so you can truly be born again and and be wrestling with assurance. So Peter wants these believers to have an assurance of their salvation. In verses 12 through 21 in chapter 1, he wanted to persuade them and give them confidence basically in the Word of God, in the divine nature of the apostolic witness. That this truly is the Word of God. And so he wants to build their confidence in the Scriptures themselves. Which is always important to have, that kind of confidence. And and of course in chapter 2 we saw it's devoted solely to the false teachers. And then in chapter 3, he is defending the second coming of Christ. which, Which the false teachers and others mock. Uh, they mock it, you know, because it hasn't happened yet. I guess they say it's not going to happen. I, I, that's hard to find the logic in that. Because it hasn't happened, it won't. Um, Carl, you haven't died yet, therefore you're not. Now that's kind of silly, isn't it? But that's their argument. It hasn't happened yet. But that doesn't mean it's not going to. And so he, he really defends the second coming, the patience of God that we'll talk about when we get there. That's in verses 1-13. through 13. And in, a, in, in the last five verses of the, of the letter, he closes really reiterating the necessity of both godliness and, and growth, it, both in the, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to see that word knowledge a lot in this, in this, in this letter. Having, um, you know, having a knowledge of the Word of God is, is so foundational for, for fighting back against false teaching. We've got to have a knowledge of who God is. A saving knowledge we'll talk about today, but also a knowledge, a growing knowledge in our sanctification. That's why it's so important to study sound doctrine. We don't do it to just swell our heads up, but we do it to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when, so when these false teachers come along, which they do in our day as well, we can say, no, that's false. And we don't, we, don't get, we don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So that's a little bit by way of introduction. Um, the greeting still in verse 1. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant. He starts out by saying, identify himself as a bondservant. The word is doulos in the Greek, which means slave. Right? It means slave. Unfortunately, many of our modern translations don't translate it as slave, but that's what the word means. And and it's just the idea of Peter is identifying himself as one who is owned by. He is owned by Christ. Owned by Christ. He is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A slave of Christ. And guys, that's not just some special category for Peter or for an apostle. That's for every Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a slave of Christ. He owns you. Does He not? What does the Scripture say? Uh, Now I forgot. (laughs) Right? We're not... not, uh, We've been bought by another. Right? We've been purchased by another. We are not our own. Is what I was thinking of. We're not our own. We've been bought by another. We have been redeemed. In 1 Peter 1, I think it's around verse 18 and 19. We've been redeemed, purchased... By what? Gold and silver? 
No, the blood of Jesus Christ. He purchased us. So Peter is, he is identifying himself as one who is owned by and completely devoted to Christ, who is his master. Right? He's his master. What does the Bible say? We can't serve two masters. When we bow the knee to Jesus Christ, He is our master. We are His slave. And so the whole relationship, that's how, that's how the, and of course, you know, in our day, slavery, the, the talk, it can be very offensive. But guys, we're all a slave to somebody. We're either a slave to our sin or a slave to Christ. And the great thing about being a slave to Christ is who our master is, right? Our master is gentle, our master is kind. He leads us like we looked at a few weeks ago. He's our great shepherd. And so that's who Peter is saying. He's a, he's a slave. And this word, that it has the meaning of he's owned by, devoted to Christ, to the disregard. Being a slave is to the disregard of one's own interest. In other words, our interests, our desires, now our goals are all under his lordship. And so... That's the idea of being a slave. And that's for all Christians. That's for all Christians. We are doulos. We are slaves of Christ. And he was under the authority of Jesus Christ and submitted to his lordship. He also identifies himself, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the word apostle, in some context, when you read it in the Scriptures, it can be used simply as a missionary or messenger. You'll be reading it because you know you'll think, well, I thought there were only twelve, and it'll start naming other people apostles. Well, it can be it can mean just a missionary or a messenger, but not here. Peter obviously was one of the twelve. As a matter of fact, he was he was the the head of the twelve. He was what he was what we call first among equals. He was an apostle, but he was you know he was part of the 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 inner three and was even considered the head of, of John and James. As an apostle, as one of the twelve, Peter is showing both his, or he's sharing both his, his, his eyewitness and authoritative teaching. And, to, and to, to show you what I mean by that, in verses 16 through 18 in chapter 1, we see his eyewitness. His eyewitness of Christ, which is one of, obviously one of the um, qualifications of being an apostle. For we did not follow, this is chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. The mountain of transfiguration is what He is referring to there. Um, so he, he's, he is an eyewitness of these things, of the resurrected Christ. And in chapters three, chapter 3, verse 2, He says this, I'm going to read verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. We are speaking, I am speaking the words of Christ. I am speaking that which is Christ 
has commanded us to speak as His apostle. So Peter as an apostle is one officially sent forth by Christ Himself as a divinely commissioned witness of the resurrected Lord to proclaim His truth. And so, in other words, saying all that to say he received Peter, like Paul we see in his letters, he received his doctrine, his teaching from Christ. From Christ Himself. And he was also given miracle working power as an apostle. That was one of the signs of being an apostle, testifying that he was truly sent by Christ. And so just to say this, I know all of you guys know that in here, but no apostles today. There are no apostles today. When you, when you drive by the church and you see on the sign, apostle so-and-so, just keep driving. Just keep driving. Christ, uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, just, just that he had, he had received this power, he had received this message, any of the miracles that they performed was all received from Christ. And um, so, so before we, before we get going, just one last thing about these titles, bondservant and apostle. Um, I think that's really just a, something to point out. That's really a good pattern, a good balance for anybody who would be a leader, pastor and elder to have. What, how Peter identifies himself. Both a bondservant and an apostle. So obviously we don't have apostles today, but speaking to anybody in spiritual leadership, to have this balance, yes, there is given, there is given an element of authority, right, that, that, a, that a pastor has, an element of authority to watch over the church, to, to lead, to teach, but also remembering that just like all the other sheep, that that man is a, is a, is a bondservant, a slave. So we have the picture of, we have the picture of, Authority, but submissive humility. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And so anybody, anybody, any pastor or elder who would get that kind of out of balance on that, uh, there could be problems. So I just see that as a, as a beautiful picture of humility. Somebody who has authority, but, but also understands their, uh, their role before Christ is really no different than any other. We're all slaves of Christ. And so that's by way of introduction, guys. We'll, uh, we'll, look at, we'll look at the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 today. If you have your, if you have your bulletin on the back, I thought of the, the, really the theme of this message. If I could summarize it, it would be this. <clears throat> by the grace of God and Christ's work on the cross, we have been given the faith to believe, in which we are now justified and have peace with God. So we're going to look at we're going to look at our saving faith today. We're going to look at five things regarding our saving faith in verses one and two. So the first one we're going to look at is our saving faith is received as a gift. Received as a gift. Now before we talk about this being received as a gift, I wanted to point out that the faith that he's talking about here is not the same idea that we see, for example, in the book of Jude. And I'm going I'm to read it so I, so I get it correctly here. Just Jude, the, the third verse in Jude, where Jude writes this, very familiar passage. 
Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That word faith that Jude is talking about is talking about the body of doctrine, the body of teaching, the gospel and all the essentials that's been handed down. Jude was wanting to write them a letter just about their common salvation, but he knew that false teachers were coming, so he wanted to to write this uh, so that they would contend for the faith. But the word faith there is different than what we're looking at today. Again, it was the the body of teaching. This faith that Peter is talking about in verse 1 here is the more of the... the, the uh, personal faith to believe the gospel that God gives us. So it's two different things. So I just wanted to clear that up before, so you understand what we're talking about when we talk about faith. It's the faith that you and I, the personal faith that we have, that God gives us to believe the gospel. And so the word receive, that's very important. To those who have received a faith. Received a faith. This word means Literally, to receive or to obtain by lot or by divine will. That's what that word lot means. To receive or obtain something by lot or divine will. To see, it, to see an example of this, there's, there's many of them in the Scriptures, but um, in Luke chapter 1, real quickly, we're going to look at an individual, John the Baptist, his dad, his father, I'm not going to get into the story, but just point something out in, in verses 8 and 9. It says this, speaking of Zacharias, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's this whole idea of how God would accomplish His divine will through the casting of lots. Is the whole is the whole the whole what the meaning of this word is? Zacharias obtained by lot or divine will the privilege of offering incense in that text, and so this word "receive," guys, it's really really important. This word "receive" in this text it has the meaning of of something. Gained, whatever that something is, in this case, it's our faith. It has the meaning of something gained, our faith in this text, not by human effort. Not by human effort or personal worthiness, but solely by God's sovereign purpose. That's what this word is saying. We, that's how we receive this faith. That's how we had the faith to believe because we received it by lot. But or by God's divine will. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. In other words, by lot or divine will. Now we all have faith, do we not? We all have, and I mean every person has faith in, in certain things, right? When you... I mean, we could think of countless examples. When you got on the road today in your car, you have faith that your lug nuts are secured tightly, that your wheels aren't going to fly off. 
You have faith every, we have faith every time we go in a restaurant, even though we don't see the man or woman cooking the food, that they don't poison us. And you can go on and on and on. We have faith in things. But saving faith is supernatural. That's what we're seeing. Saving faith is supernatural. It's given by God. And the great thing is, guys, because it's supernatural, it's given by God. It comes from God. It's also preserved by God. What does the text say? And I think it's Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you. That's the idea. The same one who began a good work in you will finish it. It's given by God and it's finished by God. We will preserve to the end because, or we will persevere to the end because God preserves us. Because it's a faith that He's given. Listen to Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That Greek, the Greek verb translated granted, beloved, is from the noun for grace. Very, very closely associated with grace. So a Christian's in this text, we see a Christian's suffering and the ability to believe is a gift of grace given by Lot or His divine will. And just for a little extra here, in case that's not strong enough, we see in two places in the, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, that repentance is granted by God. Given by God. By His divine will. By grace. Repentance is given by grace. Faith is given by grace. And what did Paul say in Acts 20 and 21? You can't separate repentance and faith. He said we preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see them both granted by God. Both given by God through, by Lot, divine will, as a gift of God. The 1689 Baptist Confession agrees. The grace, in, in chapter 14, paragraph 1, it says, the grace of faith enables the elect to believe so that their souls are saved. It is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word. And then, and then lastly, before we move on to our second point, to see an example of that in Scripture, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, we see a woman named Lydia was listening when Paul was preaching the Gospel. And what happened? It said, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So she was listening, right? To the, to the outer eye, she's listening, and then she responds. She believes. But what happened? We know from the text, it's because the Lord opened her heart. That's the same thing of saying the Lord enabled her to believe by His grace. And so it's really a beautiful thing that Peter has. In 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, speaking to these people, to those who reside in these areas who are chosen 
And then in, and then in 2 Peter chapter 1, these same ones that are chosen received by the grace of God their faith to believe. And that's what we see. That's what we see in text. Those whom God chooses, right? He calls. And through the Gospel, they hear, they believe. But it's all of grace. All the way back before the foundation of the world, it's of grace. And at a given point in time, He gives us the gift of faith. So that's the first thing we see about our saving faith is that it, that it is received as a gift. Secondly, still in verse 1, it is remarkably precious. Our saving faith, beloved, their saving faith, your saving faith, my saving faith, our saving faith is remarkably precious. In the NAS, it has this phrase here. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. As the same kind as ours. Meaning this, equally valuable, equally honored, or equally precious. Equally precious. If you have an ESV, it's going to say something along the lines of, of equal standing. The New King James and the King James use this phrase, like precious faith. Of like precious faith. That's where the word precious comes from. And Peter, the reason I chose this word for this, for this point number two is because, well, it, it, that's what it means, equally precious, but Peter loves this word. Peter loves this word, which is another just clear evidence that Peter's the author here. We see it in 1 Peter. He uses the word precious in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, verse 19, in chapter 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, and then here in 2 Peter, verses 1 and 4. He, he likes this word precious. So what, what makes our faith so precious? What, what is it about our saving faith that is so precious? Beloved, I think... I mean, we'd have to say more than anything, it's object. Would we not? The object of our faith, who is Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 is, is one of the places he uses this word. But listen to this, he says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So, we, first of all, our, our faith is so precious because the object of our faith is so precious. What God saved us with is so precious. We were saved by nothing in this world, nothing perishable, nothing, no amount of riches, no human leader, no amount of power, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That Think about it, guys. Think about how precious your faith is that God has given you. That, that, you are, that you're no longer on the way to eternal judgment, but, but God in His grace has, has... You have received by lot this precious faith. And your relationship with the God of the universe has now changed. You're no longer His enemy. You're now His child. He's your shepherd. He's your father. Oh, this faith is precious. We could preach a whole sermon on this. I almost entitled this message, Our Precious Faith. I would have been copying off Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Because, I mean, it is. It's precious. We could just go on and on and on about how precious this faith is. It's also precious because it's worth more than gaining the entire world, is it not? You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If, if we could gain it, all the riches of the world, everything that our sinful flesh desired, when we think of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? All the power, all the prestige, all the acclimates, all the, you name it, money, everything that goes with it. It, it, it doesn't even compare to the value of our soul. That's why our faith is so precious. Our faith is what God used, what God gave us so that we could believe and be justified. So that we would not lose our soul. What will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul is what he asks in that text. You remember what Sean told us last week, guys? How much to, that we're to count the cost to follow Christ? Remember? Count the cost. And it does cost. It may cost you. It will cost you something. It'll cost maybe a break in a relationship. It may cost you friends. It may cost you popularity. Whatever the case, there's a cost to following Christ. But what Sean said, and I'm going to agree with, compared to what you gain, you gain so much more. You gain eternal life. You gain eternal life. You gain forgiveness of sins. You go from being at enmity with God to having peace with God. And yeah, you may lose friends, but you also gain other ones. So there's so much more to gain. Because obviously, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to lose your very soul and go to hell. And so the cost is so much greater in the end to give up your soul. So our, our, our faith is precious. It's precious. And then he says that, that phrase, quoting the NAS, the, the same kind as ours. To those who are, have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Or again, New King James, like precious faith, ESC, of equal standing with ours. What, who is this ours? What's he... Who's he referring to? There's two options here. He could be referring to it's the same kind as ours as an apostle. Yes, I'm an apostle, but your faith is no different than ours. Ours is no different than yours. The apostles don't have a special kind of saving faith. That's what he could have meant. Or he could just mean us as the Jews. Since he was writing primarily to Gentiles. Or he could have meant a combination of both. The point is the same. I, I, I would probably lean maybe towards him as a Jew because we see Peter's his, his interaction with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and how they were saved in the same way. They received the same Spirit. But either way, the point is the same. It's what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not that Paul's, not that, not there, are, not that there aren't distinction among these groups, but that there is spiritual, spiritual equality, right? 
It's the same faith. It's the same kind as ours. It's the same like precious faith. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a homeless man on the streets, if you have received this faith, it's the same. It's the same faith in the same Lord. Right? The same Lord. There's no second class saving faith. Don't think that you have any less of a saving faith than fill in the blank. We are one in Christ. That is where our unity should always be, beloved. One in Christ. We're not one, and you can pick out some secondary doctrine that people want to fight over and divide over. We are one. Our unity is in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself continually wanting to divide over non-essentials, you need to repent. We are to to be unified in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one saving faith. And the saving faith that God has granted me is no different than what He's granted you and vice versa. So we see that our saving faith is received as a gift. We see that it is remarkably precious. Thirdly, we see that it is realized, or that word realized just means brought about. It's realized by or through the cross. Your version may say through or may say by. That's why I put both words. It's realized, it's brought about by the cross. That's where this faith is brought about. Without the cross, we wouldn't even be here about the cross of Jesus Christ. So still in verse 1, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That phrase, by the righteousness, there's two possibilities here of exactly what it's saying. In the end, as you'll see, it really doesn't matter. It's still the source is the cross. But by the righteousness, could it could mean this. In the, in the seven, eight, nine commentaries I read, uh, a few of them put this as a possibility. Um, the Reformation Study Bible, the Ligonier Study Bible, stated this, that it could be, this, this, when it says that, that we have received this faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, that it just means fairness and impartiality and, and basically in giving the gift of faith to all types of people. And that's what it could, it could be that. We, we know that God does do that. But it's, it's really hard to tell exactly what He's saying. The other view, because I would, I would um, I'd probably lean to this second view, because I would say, is fairness, the question, is fairness the most natural meaning here? Because in verses 1-4, through four, the emphasis is all on God's grace and a gift. And so the gift of faith is is not understood to be fair, I guess you could say, but entirely of grace. So the other other option is this. All the Johns agreed with this one. John Calvin, John Gill, John MacArthur, and Thomas Schreiner. uh, That it would be this. that That it's simply referring to His saving righteousness. 
And to show you what I mean by that, we'll look at a couple texts here. Like I said, really in the end it doesn't matter. The source is the cross, either way. But Romans 3, 21-22. When I read these kind of texts, that's why I think this is what Peter's referring to. Romans 3, 21-22, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there, there is no distinction. Just that specific righteousness of God that He, that he gives us through Christ. Um, Philippians, yeah, Philippians 3, 8, 9, I think may even be more clear. Philippians 3, 8, 9 says this. Um, more than that, of course, Paul, is, he, he just, he, he's been speaking about all of his acclimates of being a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, all that stuff that, that now it means nothing. In verses 8 and 9, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, um, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So I think it's just simply referring to that righteousness that He gives us, His free gift, His imputed righteousness that He gives us, which was earned, again, either way, the source is the cross. Because the righteousness that He gives us was earned by Christ, His work on the cross. His active obedience, right? His sinless life, His passive obedience, His death on the cross. So it's just one of those phrases that it's not, even when you look at the original, it's just really hard to tell exactly what Peter's saying. So it's not really that big a deal. We know the source is the cross of Jesus Christ. And we know that when we believe that He imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we know that God does because He is righteous that He grants this gift to different groups of people. So all of that's true. So obviously, whichever one you want to choose in that interpretation, our faith that was given to us was brought about by Christ and His work on the cross. And then real quickly, who was it, it in, in that same text, who was it that did this, that we, that we received this from? It says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One person here. This language is written in this sentence. He's speaking about the same person. He could have very easily inserted an article before the word Savior. He could have stated it like, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. That would have been real easy for Peter to do to distinguish God and the Savior, but he didn't. This sentence here is just Peter. It's, it's another line just tucked in the Scripture where Peter is defending the deity of Jesus Christ, calling Him God our Savior. Peter is attributing one of the names for God in the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. Now this is in many places. I'm just giving you one example. 
In Isaiah 43, verse 3, for example, Yahweh says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And God is identified by that name many times. And Peter, that's what the New Testament writers do. They'll take an Old Testament text, speaking of Yahweh, and they'll apply it to Christ. They're all over the New Testament. And this is one of those times. And so again, it's important. It's important to Peter to remind these believers of who their God is. Who their God is. Who their Savior is. And who is the source of their righteousness. All sound doctrine that he's teaching. And he's reminding them. Because the false teachers were coming. And so before we move on to point number four, speaking of Christ's deity, just a reminder from me to you, by way of a question, can you defend the deity of Jesus Christ if you're asked to? Now again, there's texts like this that are tucked all in Scripture. But it's three things easy to remember, guys. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. When somebody comes to you with the argument that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God, go to John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Usually, you'll be able to close their, shut their mouths just with those texts. They're very, very clear. So go, go study those texts yourself. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. All really the powerhouses defending the deity of Christ. So fourthly, about our saving faith, it is rooted in grace and peace. Rooted in grace and peace. Grace. That's what we've been talking about today, right? We sang about it. Free, unmerited favor towards sinners. That's what grace is. What, 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 what do those letters stand for? I'm trying to think here. Grace. God's... God's... Uh, something at Christ's expense. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. God's riches. Huh? God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? His expense on the cross. That's what grace is, guys. And it's free. It's unmerited. We don't earn it. All of our salvation. This is really just reviewing everything we just said. All of our salvation is a result of His grace. He chose you before the foundation of the world. What did you have to do with that? <laughs> what did I have to do with that? Before the foundation of the world, He chose us. It should just make us fall on our face. It should... You know, many people think, and maybe it does, and some people, I don't know, that, that these doctrines would cause you to be proud. It should cause you to fall on your face in humility. Why? I don't deserve it. But that's what it is. All of our salvation is the result of His grace. And as a result of His grace, guys, this grace and peace, we now have peace with God. Look at verse 2. This is where we're at now. This is rooted in grace and peace. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So because of God's grace in saving us, we now have peace with God. Peace of God we'll talk about here in a moment. But first of all, it's more important to have peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, right? Justified, 
being declared righteous before God by faith, the faith that He gave us, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer enemies. No longer enemies. And then secondly, and then we'll move on to our last point, in Colossians 1, 19-22, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. There's that deity language. And through Him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That's peace with God. You and I have peace with God. Why? Because of the blood of His cross. And although you were... This is who we formerly were. Those outside of Christ, this is who they are. Although you were formerly alienated, right? Alienated from the life of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4. And hostile in mind. Hostile to God. Romans 8-7 says the man... That is in, who is in the flesh, the unbeliever, he is hostile to God's law. He cannot submit to God's law. He won't. He cannot. He doesn't want to. Hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet now he has, or, or yet he has now reconciled you. Through the cross, God taken the enemies who were hostile towards him. They had a relationship with God, but it was not a good one. Reconciling. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's what happened at the cross. Because of God's grace, we have now been reconciled to God and we have peace with Him. So our saving faith is rooted in grace and peace. And lastly, it is revealed by knowledge. It is revealed by knowledge. In verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Um, so this word knowledge here. You'll see, we're going to talk about the word knowledge or we'll see it several times in this book. Um, well, before I get to the word knowledge, just that word multiplied. I, I forgot to look what that word may say in your, in your versions that you have. The NAS says multiplied. But it just means to increase or to abound. Grace and peace be, be multiplied, be increased. That it may abound in you. That's His prayer for these people. And so He's separating the... the the, the grace and the peace here. And it says it, it, it's to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Christ our Lord. So we're going to spend the rest of the remaining few moments talking about this knowledge. So all of what he said up to this point, to experience peace with God that Paul talked about in Romans 5.1. And the, and the peace of God because I believe that's what this peace is referring to, both because it's talking about this peace being multiplied, abounding. We do have peace with God when we were saved. We now our relationship is right with God. But it's also the peace of God. That 
see. I'm gonna I'm gonna start over here in a line. I got I kind of got mixed up here where I was going. So all of what he said up to this point, the peace with God that we have, and the peace of God, and to receive His grace and our faith, all of this, everything I've said up to this point, everything Peter said up to this point, is all dependent on the knowledge of God. It's dependent upon the knowledge of God. Our saving faith, Remember what Jesus said in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3? This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. We have to have a knowledge of God, first of all. A saving knowledge of God. There is a saving knowledge of God. What what does the Scripture say? That we come to know God. So this first knowledge is, is experienced through the new birth where we come to know God. That's what, that's what Jesus is referring to. This is eternal life. So the first thing we always have to ask ourselves is do we know God in this saving way? And so when Peter uses the word knowledge in this letter, there's two different words that he's using. One word is used to describe more of the, of the conversion that I just spoke about. When we come to know God in a personal, saving way. The other, and they're very, very closely related. The other word that he uses is more post-conversion in our growth. That we come to know God even more. And, and a lot of times, I believe it was Thomas Schreiner who said a lot of times these words are even overlapping. They're so closely connected. And so this knowledge that Peter's talking about. It's personal in a saving way. It's relational, but it's also intellectual. Now obviously it's not only intellectual, right? It's not only intellectual. That, does, that kind of knowledge doesn't save. It's that personal knowledge. But, but, it, but the intellectual aspect of it is true as we are growing and we come to know God more. We have to use our minds and study these things. This personal knowledge comes at conversion, right? And it brings peace with God. The intellectual knowledge comes through sanctification. Where we do, we use our minds as we grow in the knowledge, right? In the knowledge and in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the letter. In the same chapter, in John 17, 17, Jesus praying to the Father. What does He say? Sanctify them in the truth. And what is the truth? Your Word is truth. So how are we sanctified primarily? How do we grow primarily? How do we come to know God more? It's through His Word. The more we come to know our God, the more secure we become in our salvation. And we begin, again, we begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Which is how He finishes out the letter. We experience more of the peace of God. The text that Paul uses, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Can you guys identify with that? Since you've walked with Christ, you have this. You can't explain it to somebody. It, it 
surpasses all understanding. How can everything... And it doesn't mean... I mean, obviously, that's, I think that's when it's most powerful is when we are going through trials. And yes, things are hard, but, but in the end, deep down, we have this peace. The, we, have, we have the peace of God that we know. That no matter what happens, when this earthly life is over, we, can, we talked about that a few weeks ago. As the Lord being our shepherd, we can stare death in the face with this peace. And it, and, it, and it increases and grows as we grow in our knowledge of who God is. Think about the fact, guys, if, you, if God saved you back whenever He saved you, and you didn't know the things about God that you know about Him now, you would, your peace, you would not have the peace of God that you have. You would not be secure. Yes, your sins would be forgiven. But who is this God that I believe in? Am I secure? Is He going to throw me to the side if I commit a certain sin? Is he, who is He? But when we study things like the attributes of God, and we learn that God is faithful, we learn that He never changes, we learn that He is all-powerful, He's able to save us, He's able to keep us, nothing can snatch us out of our hands. Where do we learn these things from? The Word of God. That's this knowledge that we're to grow in. Where we get this peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, it, so in closing, beloved, I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself, as I ask this question to you, and I ask it of myself, what's your greatest goals in life? The remaining time that you have on this earth, what are your greatest goals? And it's okay to have a lot of goals, okay? I'm not against having other goals. But what's your greatest? And then spiritually speaking, are you content in simply knowing Christ in a saving way, which is obviously the most important? Or do you want to know Him more? Do you desire to know Him more? That's what this language is. That, we, that, that this grace and peace be multiplied, that it abounds more and more to you in the knowledge of God. As you, as, you, as you grow in your knowledge of who your God is that has saved you and what He has for you. Do you want to know Him more? This should be the, the central goal of our Christian life. It should be. And I know all true Christians want to know God more. But this should be the central that the thing that makes us tick, we want to know our God. And to see an example of this, listen to Philippians 3.10, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, that same chapter I just read a while ago, talking about all of his past accomplishments of being a Pharisee, and how he said it, it, it all, now that God had saved him through Christ, it all was not worth any more than a pile of dung. And so we know that did Paul know Christ in a saving way? Yes. He knew Christ. So we've got to remember, what is he speaking about here with this language? So this was Paul who already knew Christ. Christ saved him. He knew Him. But listen to what he says. That I may know Him. Well, I thought you already did, Paul. No. He wants to know Him more. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That's what Paul is stressing. Growing in his knowledge of God. That's what he, that's what he had a passion to do. My wife and I were discussing this yesterday, how one of the most important words for your life, beloved and mine, is balance. We must have balance in every area of our life where you can get basically anything, too much of anything, and you can get way out of balance. And so we were talking, the only thing that you couldn't have too much of but it's, it's in this sense. It's, it's, in a, it's in the correct sense. You could not have too much of Christ. You can't know Christ too much. Because what happens? When you truly grow to know Him, I'm not talking about being a religious nut. I'm talking about truly knowing Him. Everything else in your life will be in its proper place. If you're truly seeking Christ and you, that's your desire to know Him, you're going to be walking in the Spirit. You're going to be gentle. You're going to be loving. You're going to know how to treat people. Your priorities are going to be in line, right? Because your desires are going to be His desires. This is the key. is to know Him more. That's the key for you as believers. That, that should be our goal. A deeper knowledge and a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him in a saving way, then the, then the, then the call to you is to surrender to Him. To surrender. To surrender to Him as Lord. To bow the knee to Christ as Lord and become His slave. Become His slave. And then you can know Him. And you can grow in your knowledge. And so church, can I challenge you today, and I include myself in this, can I challenge you today to make this, knowing Christ, your greatest passion and goal in life? Let's pray together. Father, we, <clears throat> we thank You, Lord, once again for just a reminder, Lord. It seems like everywhere we turn in Your Word, there's such a unity in Your Word, God. No matter where we turn, no matter where we study, it all comes back to Christ. It all comes back to Your grace. It all comes back to us being dead in our sins, hopeless, and You being merciful. Father, we thank You for that. Lord, I pray that through the ministry of Your Word and Your Spirit, God, that, that those here today, Lord, Your sheep, Father, would, would just grow in their desire to, to follow You, to know You more. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that You would conform us to the image of Your Son, Father. We thank You, God, once again for giving us another day, Lord. We thank You for Your mercies that are new every morning. Father, we thank You for our church. Pray for those who aren't here. And Lord, we just love You and praise You. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.